0: Welcome to the Monocle Current Account. In this podcast, our research team catches you up on what happened this week in the world of finance and regulations.
1: Welcome to the Monocle Current Account. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at the One Malaysia Development Berhad scandal, the OneMDB scandal. We explore how a government development company, set up to bolster strategic development for Malaysia, was exploited by the government and the international financial sector. We also look at the future of anti-money laundering around the globe. I'm Guy Wilding and I'm joined by Chris Strowley and Robin Wilkinson. Welcome guys.
0: Hi Guy.
1: Hi Guy. We're the research and content team here at Monaco and this is The Current Account. Let's run out some of the most significant headlines regarding finance and regulation from around the world. So one of the first things that I picked up was the Prudential Authority for South Africa. They published their risk assessment um, of the banking and life insurance sectors in South Africa regarding anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. Um, Some of the interesting things to come out of the summaries was basically that banks have been set a risk assessment of medium to high, while uh, life insurance has been given a, a low risk assessment. Why do you think the
2: life insurance industry has received a more favorable rating than the banking sector?
1: I think one of the things is that banks are dealing with millions of transactions um, every year. So there's a huge amount of data and money flowing through their their systems. They mentioned some of the events like the VBS scandal, uh, state capture, and even go as far as to mention kind of international events like the Panama Papers. So, you know, there's, there's definitely this link between uh, all this global kind of anti-money laundering events that continues. They also mentioned kind of various vulnerabilities within the South African banking sector. Um, Also low automation. Um, And that's kind of a concept we we talk about a lot of of bringing in automation to streamline these processes. And one of the more interesting things is digital onboarding and digital currency risk. Um, It's the kind of the risk that are brought about by the anonymity of not linking your identity to a digital currency. Something else that I've picked up is that the Uh, Financial Intelligence Center released a consultation paper also around AML, financing terrorism, and the proliferation finance. Um, And that's around using data sources to assess geographical risk.
0: So what exactly is proliferation finance?
1: Yeah, so this is something that I I hadn't seen before either, but it comes down to any kind of financing around uh, weapons of mass destruction. So any kind of unregulated financing of that. One of the the big things is that uh, the FIC are encouraging firms to incorporate external data sources from reliable and uh, reputable independent third parties into their risk framework. So specifically with their geographical risk data, um, they mentioned certain standard-setting bodies like the Financial Action Task Force, the OECD, and Transparency International. Uh, For all accountable firms to FICA, uh, they can comment by the 27th of November 2020. So, looking internationally, Chris, you've got a story on the Ant Group and its recent IPO issues. Yes, guys. So,
2: Ant Group, the financial arm of Alibaba, the usually successful e commerce company founded by Jack Ma, Ant Group was supposed to have the largest IPO in history, and that was said to be $34 billion. But just days before the listing, it was suspended by the Chinese government.
1: So this is obviously really serious. Um, Did the Chinese regulators give any indication as to why they had suspended the IPO? Uh,
2: There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding why exactly the Chinese government did suspend it at such a time, just before the IPO was supposed to happen. But the, the government has said that they will be looking into amending regulations around big tech and especially around fintech, And um, being one of the biggest fintech players with over 7 million users in China, Ant Group definitely falls into this group.
0: Very interesting story. And then, Chris, you also mentioned you'd seen a story about the EU and incoming non-performing loans.
2: Yes. So as we know, Europe's currently going through this second wave of the coronavirus. And the European Central Bank, the ECB, has said that there is a severe but plausible scenario that there will be 1.4 trillion euros worth of non-performing loans coming through in the next year. And in response to this, they have suggested that the region sets up a regional bad bank to deal with these incoming NPLs. So Chris,
1: I've never heard of the concept of a a bad bank. What is that?
2: So a bad bank uh, is essentially a bank that will work alongside the traditional banks and take bad assets off their loan books to make their loan books more stable. So a good example would be in 2014 in South Africa, uh, when African bank was taken into curatorship by the government, the government set up a bad bank to take uh, bad loans off Africa bank's balance sheets so that they could try and go forward with a more stable uh, loan book. Robin, uh, talking about a second wave of coronavirus in Europe, you have some important news for us from Pfizer.
0: Yes, so something a little bit more positive. There's been a breakthrough in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and German company BioNTech have developed a vaccine that has proven to be 90% effective in a Phase 3 trial, which is the final stage of testing that comes before commercial licensing. The drug is expected to be submitted to authorities for emergency approval before the end of November, which has people excited that the vaccine may be available by the end of the year if the drug authorities give it the green light.
2: What has been the reaction to this announcement?
0: World leaders have been somewhat cautious, um, warning that the fight against COVID is far from being over, but global equity markets rallied sharply after the announcement about the vaccine, particularly as far as travel and leisure companies are concerned. British Airways' parent company, IAG's stock prices increased by 30% in London, as did Air France, KLM in Paris, and Ryanair climbed 16% in Dublin. Brent crude oil also went up by 8.5%. I
1: think one of the interesting things that I saw is that the the vaccine is is going to be charged at $40, which becomes quite a lot of money when you think about the millions of people that uh, governments are going to need to buy this for. Um, And I know there's a risk, especially for developing countries that already are under pressure from an economics point of view or financial point of view, that they're not going to be able to afford the, the price tag that comes with this vaccine. So moving on to our main story, we're going to unpack the 1MDB scandal, the financial system that enabled it, and what the future of AML might hold.
0: So, the big news recently on the 1MDB story is that an Asian subsidiary of Wall Street giant Goldman Sachs has pleaded guilty to a US criminal charge for the first time in the firm's history. The firm's parent company entered a deal to avoid a criminal conviction that requires it to pay $2.9 billion in penalties to the US Justice Department and American securities and banking regulators. This is over and above what it has already paid in a settlement with the Malaysian government. All in all, it is estimated that the 1MDB scandal will cost Goldman more than the $5 billion it paid out in a 2016 civil settlement relating to its involvement in the 2007-2008 financial crisis. And that's not even mentioning the reputational damage that may be done by a statement of facts that will be released to the public with the details of the settlement.
1: So, for those of us who might not know what the 1MDB scandal is all about, can you share some of the details?
0: The 1MDB fund was a state-owned fund created in 2009 by Najib Razak, who was at the time the Prime Minister of Malaysia. The purpose of the fund was to finance development projects that would drive economic growth in the country, or at least that was the official story. Investigations have since revealed that billions of dollars were siphoned off from the fund and used to finance some lavish spending by Najib Razak and his friends and family.
2: Yeah, so I've been following this story quite a bit and some of the money that has been used from this fund has funded crazy stuff like mega yachts docked in Bali, a grand piano made of clear acrylic that was given to a supermodel as a gift and a huge amount of designer jewelry as well. Uh, One of the more interesting things that this money did buy was it uh, produced the film Wolf of Wall Street, ironically. And in that story, the producer actually gifted Leonardo DiCaprio original Picasso worth $3.2 million. DiCaprio has since relinquished the painting to use authorities and he has not been accused of any wrongdoing. But just following this fa- the facts on this story, it's it just gets more absurd and the, the more you read.
0: Yeah, so things started to go wrong when in 2015, one MDB missed a loan payment, which triggered an investigation by Malaysian authorities. At that point, evidence began to emerge that nearly $700 million suspected to have originated from 1MDB was deposited into Najib's personal bank accounts. But in response, Najib simply sacked the Attorney General leading the investigation and reshuffled his cabinet to ensure his supporters remained in key positions, and the investigation was effectively shut down. The following year, the new Attorney-General cleared Najib of any wrongdoing, stating that the money had been a donation given from a prince in Saudi Arabia and that the money had in any event since been returned. Najib's involvement did, however, cost him the next presidential election as the public grew more and more suspicious about his involvement. And later that year, the U.S. Department of Justice got involved, however, when it filed a civil suit to seize assets it alleged were bought with funds stolen from 1MDB. The suit says $680 million found its way into the personal accounts of someone referred to as Malaysian Official 1, who was later identified as Najib. This led to further investigations and charges were brought against Najib, and he was convicted last July and sentenced to up to 12 years in prison and fined nearly $50 million, but the sentence was stayed on appeal.
2: After Goldman Sachs pled guilty, they have also said that they would retrieve up to $67 million worth of bonuses paid to five unnamed senior executives as well as docking pay of the current chief executive David Solomon and several other executives. Guy, you were investigating money laundering trends in general related to the 1MBD
1: scandal. What did you find? So when I was looking at, I thought I was going to be doing a lot of research around kind of advancements in technology. So, you know, we talk a lot about machine learning using AI for big data um, to flag suspicious transactions. But what I found is that the 1MDB is a unique case in that the banks are kind of complicit in this. Um, So I'll take a quote that I found from David Solomon, uh, Goldman Sachs chief executive, and he said, we have to acknowledge where our firm fell short. While many good people worked on the transactions and tried to do the right thing, we recognized that we did not adequately address red flags and scrutinized the representation of certain members of the deal team. So I think what what David Solomon is kind of bringing up is that it wasn't that there was an internal failure in their technology that didn't pick up what was going on. It was that there was internal fraud and that's kind of one of the things that the Prudential Authority in their uh, risk assessment for South Africa has mentioned. Unauthorized activities going on within banks uh, or that are not taking responsibility for Um, by executives or by your anti-money laundering uh, functions. They also mention the requirement of tracking your domestically prominent influential persons. Um, And this would be something that Goldman Sachs would have had to do as well. With 1MDB, they would have realized who they were dealing with um, and would have had to take a, a closer look at those transactions. So, it's not really so much that we can talk about technological trends or the changes we can do in refining our processes around anti money laundering. It's more that there's a, a governance and supervisory issue that we need to look at.
2: So what are the biggest concerns that came out of the investigation of Goldman Sachs?
1: So I read an article by the Independent Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Uh, Their article's article's titled, Goldman Sachs, 1MDB Scandal... A meaningful punishment for major financial crimes and they phrase it as a question um, and basically they come with three main points um, the first is that there's a lack of consequence so they so the Department of Justice they entered into a thing called a deferred prosecution agreement at DPA which basically offered Goldman Sachs um, to accept a fine and a short probation rather than be prosecuted uh, criminally and, and for a bank to have that over their name Um, Is a huge disadvantage as they can't enter into certain contracts. They can't deal with certain institutions. Following that, but the problem with that is it's almost seen like like a a toothless regulatory practice. It it basically is just a slap on the wrist, and banks don't see it as a a real consequence. The other that they kind of mention is is self-reporting. So when you have executives in Goldman Sachs who are complicit in this, who are not taking accountability for these red flags that are being presented to them. Self-reporting as a supervisory concept goes out the window. I think that's just one of the biggest things that I've found is, is that it was a breakdown at an institutional level. And the one thing that's not mentioned in the article is whistleblower protection. You know, we've seen that in South Africa with state capture, people coming out to give information around what's been happening in the last couple of years. And oftentimes, there's a stigma towards those people. Again, going back to having corruption or um, a lack of responsibility at the executive level within these banks, that makes it extremely hard for whistleblowers to be protected, to, to get their voice heard. Okay, so considering this, what do you think are the next steps for the industry? Will there be significant reform? So the concepts that keep coming up, and they're not new, are transparency and accountability and um, obviously well, one of the most significant problems that regulators encountered with the 1MDB was the anonymity of companies and trust funds that were used for uh, this for this money laundering so basically it's using these companies these regulators weren't able to identify who was involved in these transactions and especially in these suspicious transactions and that kind of prevents them from doing due diligence and performing their supervisory roles. So one of the big things that has come out is the advocation of a global company registry. There's a company, a non-profit called Open Ownership, that has written um, a lot of research around this. And and basically, they've got a quote that that I'll read now that kind of sums it up. As the World Bank has noted, when corporate structures are used to launder money this often involves adding layers of legal distance between the beneficial owner and the assets so this is exactly what happened in 1mdb goldman sachs along with other banks used a process of layering where they transferred money between their uh, different subsidiaries and different banks and to the point where anybody would lose track of who owns the money where that money has come from um, and eventually This money lands up. So, going back to their quote, these layers are placed strategically in a number of jurisdictions because of the difficulty to investigators of accessing information. Um, And this is kind of the crux of it. This is why the ability to link beneficial ownership information from around the world is essential to realizing this data's potential to expose transnational networks of illicit financial flows. So, basically, what they're advocating is that they would set up a global company registry that all companies around the world would have to um, input their data around who are the owners of that company or that trust, uh, who has a minority ownership. And it allows regulators then to um, move into these kind of opaque areas where money laundering um, has been hidden for so long. All in all, I think the 1MDB scandal is very concerning. Um, And I don't think we've seen the end of it as regulators continue with their investigation. I think we're going to see more and more uh, who was involved in the financial sector and how they enabled this money laundering. For any updates regarding the IMDB story, please stay tuned to the Monocle current account as we continue to track this story as it unfolds. All the links
2: of the headlines and stories covered in this podcast are in the description below.
0: From everyone on the Monocle research and content team, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Visit monocle.co.za or co.uk to subscribe for updates. From Johannesburg to London, Cape Town to Amsterdam, Monocle, we design change.